This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy, right here on RCR. Changing it up this week, we go to Australia and talk to Lushington D. Brady about the voice, net zero, and the cost of living crisis in Australia. Lushington D. Brady describes himself as a punk rock philosopher, liberalist contrarian, a grumpy old bastard, and a freelance writer. Lushington's also written a book, uh, essentially an anthology of his writing at the BFD. It's called Shouting Across the Ditch, and I've got Lushington D. Brady with me now from Tasmania. Welcome. Welcome. Good day, and hello to New Zealand. How are you all? Well, I thought we'd have uh, an Australian perspective on life and politics uh, for the political tragics, just so that we can add a bit more depth so we don't delve into just New Zealand-only politics. So let's just have a discussion, Lushington, about... Well, let's start off with the thing that everybody's talking about with Australia, this so-called voice referendum. What is it? How did it come about? And what the hell has John Farman got to do with anything? <laughs> uh, poor old John. I'm not a big fan, but poor bugger's going through a lot of troubles with um, with, with illness at the moment, so do wish him the best. Uh, so The Voice, it's essentially the same agenda in New Zealand as as you have with Apupua, Three Waters. It's a co-governance thing, it, just by another name. Um, how it came about, it's like a big difference between Australia and New Zealand is that Australia never had a, had a treaty like Waitangi. Yeah. With one possible exception. And, and essentially because it was impossible. I mean, you know, the Maori in New Zealand were organised enough that Hobson could get together the major chiefs and sign an agreement. In Australia, you, they were dealing, yeah, you essentially dealing with 150 major language groups alone, and each of those would be divided up into, a, you know, sort of loose, loose sort of tribes. And the basic organising unit was a band mostly of, you know, of an extended family, could be a couple of dozen or, you know, maybe 100 or so at most. I think Geoffrey Blaney said, put it in perspective, said, the average uh, pre pre contact Aboriginal Australian would maybe meet a thousand different people in their lifetime. So signing a treaty with you know of any meaningful thing with you know, with that was just impossible. Um, John Batman did try uh, when he when he set up his his village in on the shores of Port Phillip Bay. But that treaty was never was never recognised by colonial authorities because he was essentially a, a privateer, um, and there's no. It's probably very unlikely that the the Aboriginal men who signed it had any idea what they were doing. Yeah, what what Batman was doing anyway. They probably just thought, hey, this guy's giving us a bunch of gifts, and all we have to do is make a mark on a piece of paper. Cool. Yeah. So yeah, there was never a tr- there was never a treaty. So, and that became an issue in the sort of 60s and 70s with the rise of the Aboriginal rights movement. And 
eventually we got to the point where um, by the by night 2015, I think it was, the government, con- that was when Malcolm Turnbull was Prime Minister, mm. convened what they called a, a Makarata, which was basically a, I was um, trying to get my facts straight here. Um, anyway, it was a consultative group, and they came up with what was called the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Now, as as always, they're very yeah. The left are very good at using emotive language, and you know it sounds really a yeah, nice cuddly thing. Oh, you know, it's straight from the heart. But what it was actually a very radical document. So much so that Turnbull and the Attorney General at the time, George Brandis, just said there is no way this would ever get past the Australian people. It's just too radical. Um, so it went into abeyance. Then I think 2019, the Scott Morrison and his government were preparing legislation for an Aboriginal voice to parliament. And the idea is a special consultative body to speak straight to parliament on Aboriginal issues. Uh, Morrison went to an election before that ever went, that legislation was finalised or tabled. And it was never spoken of during the election. Albanese never said a word about it. But yep. the very day after the election, when you know, the results were finalised, he announced a referendum. And this time it wasn't going to be legislated. It was going to be in, in the constitution. And that's his, they've stuck to that since so that, that it has to be in the constitution. It sounds, Which, it sounds almost like uh, an argument from the castle, isn't it? It's the constitution. It's the vibe. Uh, it's the vibe of the thing. Very much so. And that's been the issue all along. Like it took over, a, took nearly a year before they even announced what the question would be. What, and, is, the, what, what is the question, Washington? Just for, yes, for, for our listeners here in New Zealand. That's I'd have to look that up. Essentially, its its preamble is that uh, to recognise every uh, if Indigenous Australians or First Nations, I think is is the fashionable term this, these days. Uh, where that's come from, yeah, it's just basically just to be imported from America. And so the proposed question is. To alter the constitution to recognise the first peoples of Australia by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice, do you approve this proposed alteration? Yes, it's that's essentially it. But what um, defines what defines what the voice is? Oh, well, that's been the issue all along. Um, essentially, um, Albanese has just said. We'll figure that out once we've passed the referendum. Leave it to Parliament. <laughs> that, that, that's the, that's a real slippery slope, isn't it? I mean, really. Yeah. And there's, look, nobody is really, even the people proposing it are contradicting each other. Uh, Linda Burney, the Indigenous Affairs Minister, says, said, for instance, oh, you know, it won't be able to um, say anything about changing the date of Australia Day. Whereas Thomas Mayo, who is the chair of the S23 campaign, straight up said that would be one of one of the first things we'd look at. Uh, the other question has been, would it be what they call justiciable, which means 
if the government, because that's another thing, what happens if they, if the voice recommends something to the government and the government says no? Uh, if it's justiciable, it means that the voice can then take the government presumably to the high court and have it ruled on there, where some of them are saying, well, no, well, I think Robert, one of the one of the sort of legal people behind it basically said, on most matters, it won't be justiciable. I mean, most matters isn't it? <laughs> so it's, yeah, they're having an each way bet all the way. But even if it isn't, I mean, what is going, going to be the, the comeback for a government that tells a constitutionally enshrined body no? Well, I mean, you mentioned about all the different peoples, nations, languages, et cetera. Yeah. How is how is someone going to be appointed or chosen to be part of the voice? Again, or that hasn't yeah, I mean again, that hasn't been finalized. The campaigners, yes, campaigners point to the to the Langton Kalma report, which was the one actually drawn up for the Morrison government. And that is essentially that. Yeah, you know, it'll go to local local bodies. They'll elect somebody, but still, like how many people will be on it, how they will be chosen, etc., isn't finalised at the moment. Um, yeah, there's no draft legislation in place. The Carmelankton report is just that—a report. I don't think it even has the status of a white paper. So, so the Australian public are being asked to vote on a proposal that is pretty much an open door with no defined goals, ideals, or even uh, numbers of people who are supposed to represent this voice. It's, do you agree with the voice, and we'll sort it all out later? Yeah, and They've been very tricky with the referendum question in tying it to the idea of recognition as well. Uh, yeah, that's that's an other issue entirely. Should the constitution specifically recognise um, Aboriginal Australians? Uh, people point to say the say the Canadian constitution, the Finnish constitution, which do recognise their Indigenous peoples, and but. Um, no campaigners say in response to that, well, the constitution refers to the Australians of Australian people of every state and territory, and surely that includes Aboriginal Australians. Are they Australian or not? Mm. Um, and that is probably certainly for me the biggest, the single issue against the voice is it's a racially exclusive clause in the constitution. Yeah, I thought. We were supposed to get rid of that in 1967, where the Section 5118, I think what's called the race powers, uh, specifically is excluded Aboriginal people. In 1967, the reference to Aboriginal people was struck out, so it's now just the people of any race. Personally, I think section that the race powers section should be gone entirely. There should be no reference to race at all in the Constitution. and. So it is essentially an apartheid bill. 
you know, people say, oh, but apartheid was just South Africa and you know, discriminating against black people. Well, technically, yes, but that's like saying, well, democracy is on, only applies to landowning males in Athens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's what it was originally, but it's become a, a blanket term. And essentially, apartheid is any exclusive um, privilege or granted by law to to any racial group, and that's exactly what the voice is. And that's like the the astonishing lie of the S campaign is they say it's not about race. How is it not? I mean, how are Aboriginal Australians not a race as much as, say, Irish, Greek, Italian Australians, British Australians? Well, it's it's interesting because from a Kiwi perspective, we're looking at this debate in Australia and, and saying to Australians, don't go here. You are heading down the same path that is that New Zealand has headed down, and particularly in the last six years, and with our government in New Zealand introducing race-based policies, medical apartheid, um, you know, all sorts of various different ways to segregate, separate elements of society, and race being one of those. We've even had the, this government uh, split the health system in two into. Uh, a Maori health system, and then everyone else. Uh, and it's even come down to, uh, and at Auckland Hospital, for example, if you're a Maori, you can pay $3 for all-day car parking, but if you're anybody else, um, sorry, you pay the going rate on, on, on the parking buildings near the hospital. Mm. Um, yeah, that's, that's a very dark path. And, okay, at least some of the people behind it, no doubt, are doing so with the best of intentions. And I know I can see that, but, you know, they say the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I mean, no one would deny that Aboriginal Australians are disadvantaged, but is this the route we want to take to fix it? Yeah, it's um, it. it... A lot of this, I guess, stems from the declaration by the British government in 1788 that uh, Australia, or in, in particular at that time, New South Wales, uh, being the colony, uh, was terra nullius. There's, there was no that, people there. That is, I am not entirely sure that that's correct. There was a doctrine of terra nullius gradually adopted, but uh, I don't know that it was ever official, like the Britain's official view. Certainly, if you look at Captain Phillips' drafting um, orders when he was setting up the colony in 1788, yeah, he was ordered to conciliate the affections of the native peoples um, and to ensure that no, yeah, that no heart, no injury was done to them. Um, and to his credit, Philip tried. He was, for instance, he published a set of, they put up basically posters around the Sydney area showing visually like an Aboriginal man attacking a, a British man getting hanged, a British man attacking an Aboriginal man being hanged. They were trying to at least establish that, you know, their law applied equally to everyone. but. You had such two such disparate cultures, as um, Jeffrey Blaney has said. One, which was which had just invented the steam engine, 
the other which didn't have the means to boil water, which mm. is not a slur, it's just a simple observation. So two, yeah, you're probably the most widely disparate cultures on earth. And they had, yeah, there had to be conflict and it was un- it was unfortunate. Um, but there are a lot of myths around it. Like there was another one that does the rounds on social media quite often, which is that prior to 1967, Aborigines were counted under the Flora and Fauna Act. That's a complete fabrication. It's just not true. Yeah. Um, the other one is that 1967 granted Aborigines citizenship. Again, not true. They, they already were citizens. Um, they didn't have full rights. Basically, what 1967 was about was striking out um, the exclusion of Aborigines from the race powers, which basically says the government, the Commonwealth shall have, shall make orders for the for the good uh, blah 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 of, of 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 any race, which and originally said except the Aborigines, and so that was struck out. Yeah. So it still does mean that the government can pass racial laws, which I think is very wrong. Um, the other thing that 1967 did was to basically say that to drop the, the clause that excluded Aborigines from the census, from the national census, which was a holdover from colonialism because yeah. at Federation, when they were trying to get the seven different colonies all to agree, the eastern states who had fairly small Aboriginal populations said, well, how do we know that South Australia and Western Australia aren't going to use their Aborigines as um as pawns basically to you know to override our the other states. And so yeah, that was that was why they were excluded from the census. Again, that was repeat that was remedied in 1967. Yeah. So in to my mind, the the voice is basically reversing the gains of 1967. In 67, we took racial exclusion out. In 23, they're wanting to put it back. Which is exactly what's happening in New Zealand too. Uh, I don't think in a positive way it's contributing to New Zealand. You're seeing a division in society uh, based on race. And, you know, we all protested that when South Africa was doing that. And for some reason, it seems to be okay to be hitting New Zealand and now Australia down the path of racial um, division and then on all of the polarization that comes along with that at the same time. But, yes. But the it's not going too well for the yes people, though, is it? I, I saw not a, a poll all. the other day that showed that they're, they're now well in the minority now and the anti voice uh, vote is growing, whereas the yes vote is shrinking. Yes, and that's it. The yes vote peaked around the time the referendum was announced. And since then, it's it's been constantly going downhill. And I mean, initially, as you would probably expect, uh, older voters and men were more opposed. Um, more conservative states like Tasmania, Queensland were also more opposed. But that has steadily reversed um, because the thing to understand about Australian elections is it's not a simple national majority. I'm not, right. uh, not elections, sorry, referendums. 
Yeah. I'm not sure how it works in New Zealand. In Britain, say, with Brexit, it was a national majority. Whoever got past the post, the referendum was passed. Yeah. In Australia, the founding fathers were pretty clever, I thought, in making constitutional change very difficult. Um, so you have to get not just a national majority, but a majority in each of a majority of states. So Australia has seven states. At least four of them must have a majority in each state for the uh, referendum to pass. So it's 50% plus one in all of the seven states yep. and 50% plus one across the country. Well. Yeah. Yeah. So it makes it almost impossible to, to, to change the constitution in that manner then. So Albanese's, you know, gone all in on this. Is, mm. it, it, is, the, is a negative result going to affect his standing well, in a similar way to, to John Key who pushed to change the New Zealand flag and was utterly convinced that he could convince most New Zealanders that his way was the best way and then lost the referendum and kind of at the same time lost his will to carry on being Prime Minister. Yes, and uh, as David Cameron did with Brexit as well. Mm. I mean, yeah, technically it shouldn't affect the, the government, but practically, especially when a prime minister so nails his colours to that mast, it has to be, you know, a a, um, a blow. Because uh, as I said, Albanese announced the referendum out of nowhere the very day after the election. He's declared that it's the number one priority of his first term in government. Uh, note the hubris there, first term, <laughs> not only term. Um, and that also, I think, has been a big factor in the growing no vote. In the, you know, Australia, yeah, we've got a cost of living crisis, we've got a housing crisis, we've got an energy crisis, and the government's number one priority is is a race-based referendum. I guess you could cynically say that Albanese is getting this out of the way in the first year of uh, of his uh, government because you have four year terms. Yeah. If he gets it out of the way, the no vote uh, wins. He then essentially has two and a half years to make everybody forget about it. I think that's quite probable, and also, I think he wanted his his big moment. John Howard had the Port Arthur gun law reform moment. Um, Kevin Rudd had the national apology. So I think, yeah, a lot of it was just Albanese wants to, you know, have a big feel-good issue that he can that he can nail to his resume. What is it with these, you know, small in stature politicians wanting to have these big things to put their name to? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, and the thing is, it's not something that couldn't have been done by normal parliamentary process by by legislation. That's what Scott Morrison was preparing to do. Of course, the Yes campaign's answer to that, well, if it's legislated, it can always be repealed. And it's like, well, yes. That's the general if it's idea. Legislated it? And it, yeah, I mean, if it's legislated, it turns out to be a dog, yeah, we can, the next government can get rid of it. And Surely that should, 
Yeah, and they some of the analogies they use are ludicrous. Like they say, oh, well, no one complains about big business or or anyone else having a having access to parliament. It's like, yeah, but they don't they're not in the constitution. And by that by that measure, don't Aboriginal Australians have a voice already? You know, they can lobby their local member. They've got they've got representative bodies. Um, they can stand for parliament. Yeah, and a, a great many do, and are very successful. In fact, proportional to population, as, yeah, Aboriginal Australians are slightly overrepresented in Parliament. And look, yeah, good, good on, good on the the people who who run and stand and get elected. I mean, I guess the real question is: is how how is having the voice, for want of a better term, going to improve the lot of all Australians, uh, particularly with the, those crises that you mentioned, the, the the cost of living crisis would be similar in Australia as to what we're experiencing here with higher fuel prices and mm-hmm. and food prices and all of that. Let's just let's just get off the voice for now. I think we've kind of covered that to <laughs> death. <laughs> let's talk about the cost of living crisis in Australia and what the politicians are saying and what they're doing mm. about it. Well, I mean, it, it feels pretty bad here. Presumably, it's not as bad as New Zealand, given the uh, the scale of the uh, trans-Tasman migration at the moment. Mm. Uh, but it is biting. Um, just today, those Coles data was leaked from Coles, who are basically your equivalent of um, of Countdown, you know, the big supermarket chain. Yeah. Although I think Countdown are actually owned by Woolworths, but we have a duopoly in Australia rather than a monopoly. Um, well, they've just announced they're going to rename all the Countdowns in New Zealand Woolworths. So we've got a uh, duop- we've got a duopoly here, and I imagine it's a duopoly in Australia as well. Yes, and so yeah, their sales data was leaked, and it's showing that um, Australians are cutting back heavily on. I guess what you could call non-essential essentials. Uh, yeah, we're not talking about cutting cutting back on buying avocados or pate or anything. People are cutting back on things like um, hand wash, uh, sponges, um, yeah, kitchen kitchen cleaners, that sort of thing. Yeah, which I guess are not technically essentials, but they are essentials. And sales in those have plummeted in the last. 12 months and even in the last month. So it's quite obvious that people are having to cut back heavily, um, especially a lot of people who may have bought a house, say, in the last five years um, and are seeing there we've had five straight, well, we've basically had straight interest rate rises ever since Albanese was elected. They're They've just they're just going to be changing the RBA governor now, so that that may change if it's a if it's a particularly political appointment. Um, but yeah, you know mortgages are going up, and unfortunately, unlike the eighties where mortgages mortgage interest rates went up to like fifteen percent, the sheer cost of buying a house now means that uh, you know a one percent shift in mortgage rates can make or break people. Is is the government in Australia, you know, blaming external uh, inflation on on inflation 
causing all these things. They do that in New Zealand. You know, they say, yeah. oh, it's the war in Ukraine's causing yeah. inflation in yeah. New Zealand. But you know, we've just seen seen some statistics released today saying that international trade tradables are only contributing 22% of the inflation in New Zealand and non-tradables, i.e. domestic inflation, is 78%. Is it the same for Australia? And, and are people seeing through the politicians laying the blame at external, externalities for actually their frivolous and wasteful spending that's fueling the inflation? Yeah, well, I couldn't quote the numbers like that, but I shouldn't imagine it would be any different. The only way that, say, the war in Ukraine could affect Australia is in, say, the cost of gas, because, you know, suddenly, as Donald Trump warned them and was laughed at for, um, Europe was heavily dependent on gas from Russia. That's now being cut off, and they're up, they're up the creek. So Australia is exporting a lot of gas because exporters can make a ton more, you know, by selling it overseas than they can locally. Yeah. And so, but it's more, yeah, people are really seeing through, especially things like the energy prices. I mean, Albanese promised, I think some 90-odd times during the election campaign that they would lower household electricity bills by about $275 a year. Instead, they're going up about $500, depending which state you're in. And that was where, and yeah, they're firmly committed to net zero. And again, Net Zero Australia, the government's body they set up to oversee it, released a new report. And it's just diabolical, like how they can put out a report like that and still say this is good policy, I do not do not know. Um, yeah, for instance, it's just showing yet again that modelling is rubbish uh, because we, yeah, when Albanese said about lowering price prices, uh, the electricity prices said, and I know we're going to do it because we've done the modelling. Uh-huh. And now the modelling has, has Danger just been, Will Robinson, Danger Will Robinson. Yeah, it's just been completely busted. And, for instance, to go to even have a chance of going to renewables totally, we have to rebuild the entire grid because, you know, grids as they are are designed to run on constant reliable feed, you know, from a coal or gas or whatever yeah. station. Nuclear. Yeah, and so renewables are very to bit, so the whole grid has to be rebuilt. And the thing is, they're committed by by 2060, so they've got 40 years to build an entire rebuild an entire grid, and that doesn't count. Then, and they initially estimated that at costing only 78 billion, I think it was, or around around 80 billion. Their new their new report now says 1.5 trillion. That's and that's um, in the so next, that's that's an estimated cost, and that's to, just for the uh, net for the transmission on the, lines on the first to rebuild the the, the, oh, no. the network. No, the, that's just to rebuild the network to build the generation and everything else. We're looking at seven to nine trillion dollars wow. in forty years. I mean, our annual GDP is one point five trillion. Uh, as we've got a post coming up in the BFD today, right? It would essentially mean we would have to add the equivalent of the cost of health and welfare, which are our two biggest budgetary costs. Every we would have to 
add that again every year for the next 40 years. It's equivalent to what we spent um, in World War One on defence. Wow. So, mean, you know, you, our politicians in New Zealand don't yet use words that start with T. That they're... <laughs> They, they use words that start with B, and but the 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 sums involved. I mean, I was talking to a, a electrical engineer the other day, and he was telling me about this push for electric cars in New Zealand is going to hit a roadblock. And I said, "Well, what sort of roadblock?" And he said, "Well, you know, in every suburb in most streets, there's a big green, um, you know, uh, electricity transformer in there." And he said, "Yeah." I said, "Yeah, yeah, yep." Yeah. He says, "Well." They'll all overheat at about six o'clock, six thirty each night. When someone comes <laughs> home with their electric car and starts um, plugging it in, there's more and more of them being plugged in. That's going to require a massive drain on electricity, which is fed through that transformer, which isn't designed to do that and have that load. And so you're going to start seeing brownouts when you hit about, um, you know, fifteen to twenty percent of the vehicles on the road are electric. Yeah. And, oh. and we've, we've got the same problem here where yeah. our electricity reticulators and the electricity sector is talking about investing in renewables, but what they're not talking about is upgrading the the uh, the grid. And it, and and it's we're even more exposed because we've got a cable between the North Island and the South Island. Nah. And most of the power that's generated in New Zealand is generated in the South Island. And it's exported to the North Island. But that cable is at capacity. So if you want to create more generating resources and more supply, you have to build it in the North Island, not the South Island. And the North Island is not conducive to it. So we've got yeah. this massive infrastructure. And then I'm told that the cost of putting a second cable across Cook Strait is, is in the billions. And no one's talking about that. But it sounds like Australia's got the same problem that you've you yeah, um, you just have the just, infrastructure to support what the, these wet dreams of these politicians. They just so it, assume that it that it will happen. Um, pardon me. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, like they talk, for instance, um, the um, the re the report itself acknowledges that. It will have to cover pretty much about half the area of Victoria. So you're probably looking at about roughly half the area of the North Island with um with wind turbines and solar panels. Wow. Um that's just that's, huge. It's just um because I again Carl Sagan said like a back back of the envelope calculations are invaluable. They can quickly bust an idea that sounds great. Yeah, Joy. And yeah, like. I'm just a humble, you know, journalist that I've run some of them, and it's it just comes out staggering. Like to convert the entire world just on current energy consumption to renewables, you would pretty much have to cover the equivalent of India in panels and and wind turbines. So, of course, is the environmental cost of that, and they. Yeah, they just make assumptions so heroic they could leap tall buildings in a single bound. For yeah, the who's going to where are you going to get the people to build all this stuff? We already have a skilled worker shortage as is, um, and presume yeah, there is. You've got to assume that the rest of the world is is going to be doing the same thing. So there's going to be 
a massive shortage of skilled workers. Um, the materials will be in very short supply and incredible. They'll just go up in price because, you know, more people will want them. Um, then there's things like, you know, the battery. You know, they, they like to brag about their big batteries. Um, the one in South Australia, I think, was the, I'm not sure if it still is, it was the biggest in the world. You know, can only supply a few minutes worth of, of power. And the other thing that people forget is that household electricity is only a fraction of total energy consumption. Yeah, there's other things that run on oil and gas and coal, things like transport industry. So to electrify all of those is just, a, you know, the people just have no, no real inkling of what sort of tasks they're talking about. Well, they're, um, kind of, they're kind of like public transport advocates. They think everybody should take, catch a bus. Um, <laughs> and, you know, my saying about public transport is it's, everyone has these grand ideas about how public transport should operate. But the reality of the situation is that public transport is essentially uh, a non-functioning in the real-world environment. Now, in Melbourne, for example, when I lived there, Public transport, I thought, was pretty reasonable, but I came from New Zealand where public transport's mm. rubbish. But the reality is, is most people like the convenience of their private motor vehicle, and they'll have that prized from their cold, dead hands long before they'll take a tram or a bus or or, or, or cycle or, or, you know, God forbid, they walk anywhere. And the yeah, politicians... Well, so that's, why we, that's why we need our 15-minute cities. Well, we we well we don't, you know. Do I want to live in a city like that? No, I don't want to do that. But they're for other people to live in. It's the same thing, yeah. right? These politicians, and mostly green politicians, but but also mostly on the left um, side of politics, have these grandiose ideas of how we should all live, and then reality smacks them in the face, and they still are pushing that, and eventually they disappear off the off the 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 political landscape. But their ideas have have handcuffed us in to a society that is dependent on the state. And that's yeah. what those 15-minute cities essentially make people dependent on the state. And, and that might be the city council or the state government or whatever, but that's what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, it's e it is easy to make an argument from hypocrisy, but you, you've got to say, like, if some of these people really seriously believed what they say, they would change their lives dramatically and they don't live they don't practice what they preach uh one of the teal independents in australia they're called teals because they're blue green they're very rich but they espouse green you know politics in fact the greens party collectively are the richest voting bloc in australia if you look at where people vote green and teal it's all the inner cities of sydney and melbourne yeah you know, some of the most expensive exclusive expensive suburbs in Australia. That's where the Greens' power base is. And, yeah, so one of the teal independents, Monique Ryan, uh, Mongo as I call her, uh, she's, she was recently revealed that she has taken 27 business class flights from Melbourne to Canberra since she was elected. Uh, um, so that's carbon, that's, yeah, she's got a bigger carbon footprint than the average African nation. Well, the, the thing is, is these hypocrites, when they're busted for that, they say, oh, but I bought carbon credits. You know, 
So, okay, so who paid for that? It wasn't you, was it? Oh, no, that's right, the government did. So, you know, it's it's just nuts that these hypocrites are foisting these societal changes on us uh, and then womble off into the into the ether, uh, onto the speaking circuit, flying around, going to Davos and places like that in their in their jets, while they're all telling us how we should all be impoverished and live in caves and um, and maybe make our own candles. And you don't really need to have power; you can coexist just by walking around barefoot, barefoot preferably, you know, because yeah. it's it's better and for the. It's astonishing how. I mean, these people aren't stupid, but it's astonishing how ignorant they are about the very things they talk about. I mean, Steve Coonan, who is by no means a denier, you know, he's, he was uh, the science advisor to the Obama administration. Yeah, he's a physicist, so he's a hard numbers guy. And his book, Unsettled, is very good reading because it just shows that the disconnect between what is actually in the science and what is reported and widely believed is just incredibly vast. And it's essentially, it's a game of telephone. Um, you have the, the, scientists, the scientists doing their work. The IPC, IPCC compiles their uh, assessment reports, which are just uh, compilations of, of our scientific papers, blah, blah, blah. More like but then, necromancy, isn't it? Really? Then those gets those get synthesized into what are called the summary for policymakers. And particularly at that point, that's when you're getting a lot of non-scientists, active you know, NGOs, that sort of thing having input. So it's it's dumbed down and put into the summary. And then the politicians and the media actually only ever read the press releases that accompany the, the summary for policymakers. And the press releases are, a, a, yeah, are another remove from the actual science. So, yeah, they, they're just, yeah, you look at, they say, the, the Just Stop Oil protesters who are almost exclusively very well-off, private school-educated people, and they're incredibly ignorant. Like, they say... Oh, look at the wildfires in California or Canada. Oh, the earth is burning. And it's just not true. Uh, NASA themselves say that global wildfire has decreased by 25% in the last decade. So, yeah, the world isn't burning. It's it's burning far less. The world is getting greener. Not It's not turning into a desert. Um, again, NASA's own reports say that global forest, you know, forest cover has increased, and which is what you would expect in a slightly more carbon dioxide rich environment. So essentially there's no real evidence at all that the thing is, you know, climate change, it has some downsides and it but it also has upsides. For instance, more greenery, more, yeah, more food. Uh, so there's there is a balance. And the best evidence is that there is not going to be a net negative until at least the end of the century. So it's imagine us saying to people in 1900, well, you can't have motor cars, you can't have coal fires, you can't have electricity because in 100 years, you know, people who are already going to be immeasurably richer than you you are going to face some some consequences. They'd have told you to to go to hell. It's it's Luddite type behaviour, really. 
But, you know, I've been watching a few of the uh, videos that are coming out of Australia with these stop oil people that are sitting blocking the traffic and then some citizens decide that they're going to sort it out. And there was a good one uh, going around yesterday on Twitter of this uh, woman who'd had enough of being blocked by this people, walked up to another uh, female protester, grabbed her by the hair and just dragged her off, yeah. off the street. The frustration levels are building and like, they're lucky they're getting their hair pulled at the moment. It's not going to be too long before some truck driver decides to get out and sort it out with a lump of four by two. Yeah, and it's, it's um, I think it was Brendan O'Neill called it a dictatorship of the prigs because they yeah they're all they're 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 almost always very upper yeah very well to do people uh, they're the idle rich basically and who are sitting around finger wagging working class people just you know who are just trying to get to work or do their job. Well, you know, I I put put a lot of these problems that we're facing and some of the ones that you've addressed today down to the fact that conservatives don't fight. Conservatives don't say, you know what, that's a stupid idea, shut up. Yeah. Um, we just say, oh, that's nice, dear, thank you for your opinion. And then we actually don't see the danger of allowing those people to keep pushing their, their opinions out there till you get to the ridiculous situation where we have these kids that are stopping uh, vehicles on the road where you have boys who think they're girls and girls that think they're boys because nobody's actually said, you know what, um, yeah, no, that's stupid. Go to your room. Yeah. <laughs> Go to your yeah. room. You're on time out until you get a hold of yourself. You know, And, and it's, it's kind of the nature of things. I mean, most people aren't that interested in these, you know, like you know, they, they just want to go to work, do their job, go home, hang out with their families. Yeah, they're not, they're not interested in being activists or that sort of thing. Unfortunately, they may not be interested in being activists, but activists are very interested in them. Oh, oh yes, very, very, especially the useful idiots. Yeah, and so it eventually, but it eventually does come to it once people start seeing it in their daily lives. It comes to a crunch point, and unfortunately, it, then it gets it can get nasty. Which is whereupon the left sort of say, "Oh, look, you know, look what they're doing to us. They're being mean." It's like, well, yeah, they've had enough. But you know, in New Zealand, net zero is turned out to to mean that we stop our oil and gas industry, that we have some of the largest coal reserves in the world, and, and of particularly good anthracite coals and things like that. We've got some of the best, but we're not digging it up. We're not using it. Uh, we're import, net importers of dirty Indonesian coal. Yeah. Uh, and Australia is insulated a little bit from that because so far the mining communities and the politicians have realised that uh, Australia's external income that we get that you get from exporting goods like coal, like uh, uh, you know, oil, like gas, those sorts of things. And, and you mentioned right at the start, you know, you're exporting gas to the Europe because um, the Ukrainians or the Russian pipeline's been destroyed. These are all things that are helping the Australian economy, and, and pretty much, I think the Australian public gets that. Apart from those inner city you know, young people who've never wanted for anything in their life and have the latest cell phone and, and all yeah. the accoutrements of wealth that go with it and can't afford to sit on the street and, and annoy people. Yes, well, you had the very um, 
telling incident uh, was before the last election. I can't remember. It was a few years ago. Uh, Bob Brown got his his caravan of something. It was an anti-coal thing, and it was just basically the usual gaggle of what I what I call the nosy nanas. You know, the retired, you know, the retired leftist boomer ladies that. And you know, student student radicals, and they had a little caravan that trundled up the east coast of Australia. And when they got to Queensland, they didn't know what had hit them. There was entire towns just lining the streets to abuse the shit out of them because yeah, it was their livelihoods on the line. Um, but you mentioned yeah, Australia, yeah, Australia, Australia has vast reserves of coal and gas. Australia also has vast reserves of another potential energy source, which you did mention briefly before, and that's uranium. nuclear. Yes. Australia also has the some of the world's largest known reserves of thorium, which is a budding nuclear technology and a very promising one at that. Yeah, thorium um, reactors are real interesting. It's a whole other discussion. So, and that's where, you know, being the, becoming opposition leader after a thumping, elect, after a loss is never, it's, you know, it's always a poison chalice. So it's you know, Peter Dutton is unsurprisingly struggling in the polls, but there are, and you know, he's not the most uh, telegenic chap. It must be it must be admitted. <laughs> he's a, he's an ex Queensland popper, and he looks it. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, he's he's finding some. I think he yeah, he's finding some points of difference because the problem, of course, is that. Like National and Act in New Zealand, the Liberals, particularly in Australia, are just are hopeless. You know, they think that the only way to get elected is to basically be like the Greens, but just wear a better suit. <laughs> so you've got. Yeah, I'm yeah, not just, sure that's a, a, a. I'm not sure that's a winning proposition, but I guess they're going to find that out. Yeah, uh, fairly sure, and with certainly the National Party is going to find out that. Being just like Labor, but a little bit less rubbish, it is not a compelling reason for people to change their vote. No, and they only have to look at Tony Abbott. I mean, again, Tony Abbott was absolutely hated by the by the media. Um, and look, back in the day when I was still a Labor voter, I detested him as well. But then one day, I just out of curiosity, I picked up his his these little manifesto battle lines and read them. But, you know, this is actually a pretty smart guy and a lot of what he's saying is not at all unreasonable. And what Abbott did was he, like when they lost, when John Howard lost government, it was a landslide for Kevin Rudd. Kevin Rudd was more, was had the sort of popularity that Jacinda Ardern could have only dreamed of. Yeah, he was, he was running like 70% approval in the opinion polls. Um, and of course, yeah, we all know what happened after that. But to his credit, Tony Abbott turned that around in just one term to going from a landslide loss to coming within a bee's dick of getting of getting government back. Mm. If it wasn't for the two so-called conservatives in in um, New England, Rob Oakshot and Tony Windsor, yeah, he he would they would have had government. Yeah. So, and then it was another term after that, and they won. And Abbott did that by not being woke, not being weak and wet. He took the fight to them. And he, like, he absolutely hammered 
Julia Gillard over the carbon tax thing. Um, sure, yeah, he used a lot of three-word slogans of that, but he did so with devastating effect. You know, like great big new tax that just hit the government so hard. Um, and yeah, and then he won government, and unfortunately, once he was in government, he kind of lost his mojo. Like they tried to do the classic thing of um, put all the bad stuff in your first budget. And of course, it generated a massive backlash, and they they got spooked, and the party dumped him and put in Malcolm Turnbull instead, and then we ended up with Scott Morrison. Um, of course, Abbott also made a massive mistake of thinking that he could get away with breaking an election promise in his first term. Nobody care. And the thing is, Australians had had enough of that with Julia Gillard. Like the day before the election, it's very clearly there will be no carbon tax under a government I lead makes a deal with the Greens and brings in a carbon tax. So Australians were really jack of being taken for for mugs like that. So when Abbott said, you know, um, I think it was they won't be changing pensions, first budget they changed pensions, that was a pretty fatal mistake. Yeah. But, yeah, he just showed that, you know, a politician with a bit of mongrel, like a conservative politician who's just got a bit of mongrel, who ignores the media, because, yeah, they, they seem to think that they can get the media on side. That's never going to happen. No. I mean, Malcolm Turnbull was beloved by the media until he became a Conservative Prime Minister and then they turned on him. Well, so, the problem, yeah. with, problem with Malcolm Turnbull was that he was just a rich kid blowhard um, who who liked to talk himself down as being the every everyday bloke of Australia, and he just so wasn't, you know. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, he didn't grow up in in a commission house with a single mother like Albanese, <laughs> as he'll tell anybody who who, who doesn't want to know. But yeah. um, yeah, so Dutton needs yeah. So like to look yeah, you look in say Victoria, the Liberal leader there, John Pasuto, yeah, he's just pathetic. Yeah, in say so when. So yeah, he he's being sued by his own for defamation by his own ex MP. So yeah, you because know, he basically called her a Nazi. Yeah, <laughs> because she stood yeah you know, she stood up at a women's rights rally that was very suspiciously gate crashed by a gaggle of edge lords doing Hitler salutes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Dutton seems to be finding a few points of difference and. If he can pull the party into line behind him, for instance, um well Dutton's got the same problem that Christopher Luxon has. He's he's bald. Yeah. Right. And, and like people criticize me for saying that, but the facts show that bald people generally don't get elected to leadership positions. Um they don't win elections. They have to do something spectacular to get elected. Yeah. Or or, or to Jimmy the system. Like you know Benito Mussolini, for example, but <laughs> but you but the only politician you can say who is genuinely bald and got elected off his own merits was Dwight D Eisenhower and 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 Dutton. You just look at him and you think, well, if he's wearing a, a, a you know a Queensland hat, it, it, everyone's still looking at him going, yeah, but you're just a bald guy with a hat on now. <laughs> and it sounds well, it sounds facetious and it sounds superficial, but that's how the majority of people look at politicians. Look I at mean, go, oh, Peter Gutman pulled it off in Tassie. Yeah. Although I think he had 
the um, the first wave of COVID factor. I mean, for the first round of elections after COVID, it was a bonus because people were still buying into the fear mongering. So, but yeah, yeah, Peter Gutman, yeah, managed to hold on to government in Tasmania. It's very difficult. Tasmania's electoral system is even more convoluted than MMP. Oh, it's a it's appalling system. So, yeah, but as Sango Dutton is doing, like, uh, no referendum, in, like only eight out of 44 referendums, going back to that, in Australia have ever passed. Yeah. None have ever passed without bipartisan support. Yeah. Even those that have had bipartisan support often don't, like the Republic referendum. But, yeah, basically once Dutton said, okay, no, we're, we're adopting a no stance, that that was probably the, a killer blow. But, yeah, he's found on that one, he's, yeah, he's found some mojo. Like if the referendum goes down, basically he's sided with the Australian people against the elite that, that Anthony Albanese was pushing. Um, and he's also, he's openly canvassing now nuclear which has you know, been a forbidden topic in Australian politics for decades, but more and more people in the street can be saying, well, yeah, maybe we do need to think about it. Yeah. Just finally, uh, to round out, listeners in New Zealand have been watching what's going on uh, in Victoria, and we saw Dictator Dan just <laughs> show absolute excesses of totalitarianism during the the COVID lockdown, but strangely, he managed to win the last election. But what are his prospects now? He's got that election uh, under his belt now, but how's he faring? Are people tiring of Dictator Dan now? I think so. I mean, Victorians are weird, and I say that as someone who was born and raised in Victoria. You, um, you live in Tasmania and you're calling Victorians weird? <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, um, like during like my own family, like during the whole COVID thing, they were just, the, it was quite the Stockholm syndrome. Like I'd be on the phone to my mum and she'd be like, oh, no, I've got to go dance coming on the telly. And what? Yeah, like they were glued to it. I mean, and they are utterly convinced of things that are just not true, like, this, yeah, they're like, oh, Dan saved Victoria from COVID. It's like, no, he didn't. Victoria had the worst COVID outcome of any state in Australia. And that was after once it all happened after he put down lock, put in lockdowns. And lockdowns didn't stop it, they made it worse. Um, oh, but yeah, it all came from New South Wales. Like, no, they genomically tested, traced the COVID outbreaks in Melbourne and nearly all of them came from the hotel quarantine scheme. And But Victorians, you just cannot convince them otherwise. Um, it's like New Zealand was to people are still convinced that Jacinda Ardern saved us. You know, we, we, we're, our country is, you know, groaning under a mountain of debt as a result of the borrowing that happened. She swanned off to, the, to various different cushy jobs and left us all to it. Um, but people, yeah. there's still people out there who think that, you know, um, Jacinda Ardern saved us uh, by locking us all up in our houses. 
Yeah, although I think the last Victorian election wasn't as um, clear-cut as people tend to think it was because the problem for, and this is what also happened with the federal election, if you look at the federal election, um, Albanese got the second, the lowest vote for the Labor Party in a century and the second lowest in history, in Australia's history. Uh, he got a vote, 32% primary vote. Now, in the 90s, when John Howard was Prime Minister, 30 uh, Labor had landslide losses with 40% of the primary vote. Right. Um, but the problem that, that's happened is that people, conservative voters are so disgusted with the so-called conservative parties that they're deserting them. And so you're seeing a lot of votes getting um, pretty much siphoned off into minor parties. So, um, yeah, I don't think the Victorian election was quite as resounding victory for Andrews as it looked. Uh, because he may have won a lot of seats, but he didn't win as many votes as you might have expected. Yeah, and that's the values and, of that Australian voting system, isn't it? With preferential votes, and and you've got to yeah. have a you've got to have a down ticket and supporting parties so that your preferences can can pick. There isn't that right? Yeah. So, and, so Labor has the Greens as you know that helps them. Uh, with and the I would point to to uh, Jeff Kennett as well. Uh, yeah, you know, like we had, <laughs> yeah, we had another Labor government that that almost bankrupted the state. Kenner came in with a thumping majority, um, and you know he basically repaired the state's finances. The next election, he seemed to win pretty convincingly again, but there you could tell that there was an undercurrent. And then the election after that, basically hubris got to him. Um, and yeah, the election after that was he was he was tossed out, and yeah, yeah, it was definitely hubris comes before fall. One thing I particularly because I still lived in Victoria at that time, I particularly remember, like their election campaign was Jeff rules. Yeah, they thought they were being really cute yeah. and going yeah, for the yeah. young vote and that sort of thing, but I think that's that on the nose with a lot of people like yeah, he's supposed to govern not rule and the other there was a very very famous interview he did with John Fain who was like you know the, the king of talk radio in Melbourne and basically Jeff Kennett just refused he just stopped talking to him like he was asking him a few hard questions and Jeff Kennett literally said well I'm just I'm not going to answer that I'm just going to sit here and drink my tea and then there was just awkward silence and it did not play well for him. And of, course, of course, Labor put up a, a much younger Steve Brax back then, yeah. didn't he? Because I, I was living in Melbourne at the time when that election happened. And, uh, yes, yeah, Steve Brax came through, um, had a promising good start to, to his government, but uh, in reality ended up essentially being labelled as corrupt. Uh, yes. And, and that was the end of him, but it's been Labor governments ever since. There hasn't been. Yeah, I think all but I think four of the last 25 years have been Labor governments. Mm. Um, so, yeah, like I really, I have a feeling that that uh, old dictator Dan will bow out 
you know, he, he's got his statue on Treasury Place, again, thanks to Jeff, uh, rule that Jeff Kennett brought in. <laughs> yeah. So, which I imagine will be a fodden target for vandals for many years to come. <laughs> but, yeah, I think he'll he'll be out while the getting's good and his, um, his successor will be left to carry the can, much again as John John Cain did. He he quit and dumped it all in, in Joan Kerner's lap. So and she never had a hope. And look, you know, Kerner, she was a leftist. She was she was from the socialist left of the party. But I don't think she was an entirely bad politician, but she never had a chance. So. No. Um and that whole thing of just dropping the ball. I I you know, I wouldn't put money on it, but I would not be surprised to see the voice referendum called off. It's not locked in yet. Uh, basically, once they announce a referendum date, then by law they have to hold them, hold it, and they haven't yet. And now they thought he would probably announce the referendum date at the Gama Festival, which is an Aboriginal cultural festival, next month. Yeah, and he said no, not they won't be announcing it till September at least. Well, he's running out of time to get it done, and you know he's he's already been in power a year. Uh, if he leaves it much longer, it's going to run into the second half of his um, term, in which case it could negatively affect him. But yeah, so I've got a feeling. Yeah, I've just got a little niggle that it might well, actually. I'll just make be... a note of this prediction, Lushington, and we'll see. <laughs> we'll see if it yeah, comes we'll true in, in another episode. Uh, but think... I mean, we know what's going to happen if if it, if it's either dumped or if it loses, they will just. Yeah, we'll just be screamed at as the world's as racists, or you know, and, and yeah, yeah, calling yeah, and insulting voters as Hillary Clinton knows works really well. Yeah, it, it generally doesn't work as well as the politician who uh, issued the insults think it was going think it was going to yeah. work out for. Them. But you know, it's been even the very fact of calling the referendum has, by nature, been divisive. And if you look at say, American politics, you know, Obama, I think, is responsible for a lot of the problems, cultural problems that grip America now. You know, he, he ignited, reignited race in America in a way that no politician had done for decades. Even during the primaries against, he he played the race card against Hillary Clinton um, because, as pe- people conveniently forget, it was the Clinton campaign who, who started the whole birther argument? Yeah, and oh, of course yeah. The, the, the Clinton campaign are the most dirty and despicable you can yeah. imagine. You know, you look at the the birther campaign they mounted against Obama, and then later they mounted a, a similar one against Trump. Um, hmm. That it was the Hillary Clinton ch- uh, campaign that hired, you know, a, a steal steal uh, to create this dossier which had all sorts of uh, juicy details in it, which were completely made up and, and actually a fantasy and imagination of, mm. of steel. But the media just ran with it all like it was verbatim, and it's all been proven now that. So yeah, like I think rubbish. The um, there's not going. So I think just the very fact of having this referendum on a racial issue has been incredibly divisive just by its nature. So I don't think we were we. As it looks, we will probably dodge a bullet and vote the referendum down. But 
you know, there's not going to be a lot of real winners from it because it's 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 set up some really divisive, nasty politics. And yeah, so yeah, it's unfortunate, but that's where it's going to go. Well, on that note, I think we will wrap up this segment of the political tragics from the Australian point of view, from Lushington no and Brady. Uh, perhaps you might like to tell readers where they can, or listeners, where they can get their um, book from. Oh, yes, of course. Yes, a great read. Uh, uh, yeah, um, it's available from Amazon um, on Kindle ebook and in paperback for print on demand. And it's what I call a good toilet read. It's you know, it's it's lots of short articles. You, you can you can read one or two while you while you're contemplating the world. <laughs> Shouting Across the Ditch, the collected Lushington Brady Volume 1, Trans-Tasman Politics, Culture and Everything in Between. You can find that on Amazon. I found that discussion about the voice referendum fascinating. Lushington believes it's likely to fail or get pulled to save Elbow the embarrassment of a loss. Net Zero appears to have a multi-trillion dollar price tag. Yeah, that's right. It's with a T. And that's giving the politicians kittens as they try and justify impoverishing their nation for a fanciful idea such as net zero. And the cost of living in Australia is as bad as it is in New Zealand. And they've got the same problem that we have here, politicians that refuse to acknowledge that they're part of the problem, not part of the solution. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy. Right here on RCR.